been uh, been quite a week um, in our in our culture. Uh, anybody else love the Olympics? I do. Olympics um, really since it started I haven't been able to catch uh, catch every event but I've watched as much as I as I could and there are things that I watch in the Olympics that otherwise you know I wouldn't watch I just watch them every four years certain things I, I mean I don't know that much about certain events or whatever but I just get caught up in the whole spirit of it yeah the patriotic sense and I, I root for the Americans but there's so many other things going on that uh, that just intrigue me and, and, and capture me a little bit I mean the whole deal with Michael Phelps and just that commitment to excellence for, for that many years of his life and then to be able to achieve, not, not be perfect, but, but to have so much success through so much hard work and a lot of people sharing in that. And I heard him last night talk about the, the people that have meant so much to him that have been a part of that. Watching the gymnastics and uh, knowing that I couldn't do any of those things. Do you, do you realize, I, I don't know how... That this, this battery pack right here is about the, the same width as my cell phone. Did you know that's about how wide the balance beam is in gymnastics? It's four inches. That's crazy. That's just, that's crazy. How, how do you know the very first time that you can do a backwards flip and you're going to, I mean, I just, and land on it. It's amazing. And, you know, a lot of the gymnastics, the, the ups and downs and the heartbreak and the tears, and, yeah, I cried a few with, with some of those um, that just narrowly missed out on a medal or, or, or whatever, but also the parents of, of the gymnast. Did you, did you catch some of that? I love the, the, the dad of the, the one Cuban-American young man that, that did so well for us. And, I mean, and just watching them. And they showed the, also one of the girls, I can't remember which, which girl, but her parents, and, and they kind of, I mean, the contortions they go through and <laughs> watching, the, you know, watching the routine. Um, Love, love that stuff. I, I saw this little weightlifter, um, uh, uh, about a 120-pound young lady from Kazakhstan, one of those small countries in what used to be the Soviet Union out to the, to the east towards Siberia. And, and she, clean, clean and jerk, that, that means bring the, the weight from here to here and then press it above your head almost 300 pounds, 297 pounds. That's just crazy uh, watching that. Um, and then did you see this weekend, did you see the Blade Runner, the guy from South Africa, whose both of his legs are amputated above the knee? And uh, I, I don't know if he, I know he finished second in his first heat, and I'm hoping he qualifies for the finals. I don't think any of us have any idea what it would take to learn to walk, much less run, at world-class speed with both of your legs um, removed. Just, just amazing stuff, the Olympics. It's also been um, a crazy week in American culture with the whole... Uh, who, who knew that eating a chicken sandwich would ever become such a, a big deal in, in our society? Um, and... Um, you know, when you clap, I'm not sure what you're clapping for. I mean, now, I went to, I went to Chick-fil-A Monday morning for breakfast. I didn't go Wednesday on the day that was declared by some to be, you know, the day to make a statement. I went on Monday morning. The news was already out about all the, the stuff. I went on Monday morning, and I, I got to confess, 
The primary reason I went is because I like their food, okay? And there was a little bit in me that wanted to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of supporting them here, um, the whole thing. I, I just, I felt like I ought to say something about this, this whole issue this morning. And I would prefer not to, but I felt like the Lord kept, kept telling me that I should. Um, you know, it just brings up a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of stuff on Facebook, a lot of for and against and all of that. And, you know, I, the way I understood Mr. Kathy's comments initially was that he was saying what he was for. He wasn't making a statement trying to strike out against anybody. He was saying, this is what I believe and what I'm for. And I really really think that it's important that as Christians that as the the casting crown song that's out there right now Jesus friend of sinners says I think it's important that people know more what we are for than what we're against now inevitably when you say that you're for certain things it may put you in opposition to people and and somehow in our society and culture today in so many facets politics religion, all kinds of things. We've, we've developed this, this very strong sense of you're either for me or you're against me. You, you are on my side or you're not on my side. And if, if you disagree with me, then you're an idiot. And if you disagree with me, then you must hate me and I need to hate you and all of that. And that's just, that's wrong thinking. That's not true. That's not the way it's meant to be. And as Christians... We're called to speak the truth and stand for it, but we're called to speak it in love. And how we say things, how we say things goes right along with what we say. If what we say is important, how we say it is extremely important as well. Now, this whole, this whole thing is brought up, and it's such a, a re- prevalent issue in our, in our culture today, the whole issue of homosexuality, and um, people's stance on that and beliefs and what the, the way culture has, has shaped and framed that and where it's gone. And there is so much um, out there about that. And then it's further heightened now with the issue of, of uh, same-sex marriage and it's become a political hot button. Um, I just wanted to point you to, to something that the Church of the Nazarene has, um, has put out. Um, and we've, we've always had an official position, the Church of the Nazarene worldwide, about two million people. Um, but in recent years, they've made uh, some more definitive statements. If, if, we went to, if you wanted to do a, a, a full statement and see all about it, if you went online to nazarene.org and then uh, looked for the word, search for the word pastoral perspectives, it would lead you to this page. And uh, you could uh, come down, and there's a full statement on homosexuality that was made by the Board of General Superintendents of the Church of the Nazarene. And then the next section down, there's a further clarification of that. And we have some copies of this pastoral perspective. Um, It's about a, I don't know, 15-page document. We have a few copies out at the Welcome Center today if you want to pick one up on the way out, or if you want to go online, remember, just go to nazarene.org and pastoral perspectives. 
I'm just going to read you the official statement. It's just a couple of paragraphs. I'm not going to read you this whole document. And uh, I just want you to listen to this for a moment. The Church of the Nazarene believes that every man or woman should be treated with dignity, grace, and holy love, whatever their sexual orientation. However, we continue to firmly hold the position that the homosexual lifestyle is sinful and is contrary to the scriptures. We further wish to reemphasize our call to Nazarenes around the globe to recommit themselves to a life of holiness characterized by holy love and expressed through the most rigorous and consistent lifestyle of sexual purity. We stand firmly on the belief that the biblical concept of marriage, always between one man and one woman in a committed, lifelong relationship, is the only relationship within which the gift of sexual intimacy is properly expressed. If you ask me what I believe on this subject, I just read it to you. And that, that's where I stand. That's where the official position of the church is. And we know that with the two million people, you're going to have some, some movement and some flux. But that's the official position. And I, and I hope that, that not only are you hearing me make a statement saying that, uh, yeah, we're confirming that this is what we believe about marriage and homosexuality, but did you hear that first statement that the Church of the Nazarene believes that every man or woman should be treated with dignity, grace, and holy love? whatever their sexual orientation. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't violate this if I said whatever their lifestyle, we treat them as Christ would treat them. So um, God help us to, uh, to be examples of his love in the world. Come here, Brock. You too, Jeremy. What, am I in trouble now? Not yet. I want to see you do the death crawl again, except I want to see your absolute best. <laughs> <laughs> what, you want me to go to the 30? I think you can go to the 50. The 50? I can go to the 50 if nobody's on my back. I think you can do it with Jeremy on your back. But even if you can, I want you to promise me you're going to do your best. All right. Your best. OK. You going to give me your best? I'm going to give you my best. All right, one more thing. I want you to do it blindfolded. Why? Because I want you giving up at a certain point when you can go further. Get down. Jeremy, get on his back. I get a good tight hold, Jeremy. All right. Let's go, Brock. Keep your knees off the ground. Just your hands and feet. There you go. A little bit left. A little bit left. There you go. Show me good effort. That way, Brock. You keep coming. There you go. It's a good start. A little bit left. A little bit left. There you go, Brock. Good strength. That's it, Brock. That's it. Not the 20 yet? Forget the 20. You give me your best. You keep going. That's it. No, don't stop, Brock. You got more in you than that. How you done? Just rest in a second. You gotta keep moving. Let's keep moving. Let's go. Don't quit till you got nothing left. There you go. Keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving, Brock. That's it. You keep driving. Keep your knees off the ground. Keep driving it. Your very best. Your very best. Your very best. 
Keep moving, Brock. That's it. That's it. That's it. Keep going. Don't quit on me. Keep going. Keep driving. It. Keep driving. Keep your knees off the ground. That's it. Your very best. Don't quit on me. Your very best. Keep driving. Keep driving. There you go. There you go. That's it. You keep driving. Keep your knees off the ground. Keep driving it. Don't quit till you got nothing left. Keep moving, Brock. That's it. That's it. That's it. Keep going. I want everything you got. Come on, keep going. It hurts. Don't quit on me. Your very best. Keep driving. Keep driving. There you go. There you go. He's heavy. I know I'm, he's heavy. I'm bad out of strength. Then you negotiate with your body to find more strength, but don't you give up on me, Brock. You keep going, you hear me? You keep going. You're doing good. You keep going. Do not quit on me. You keep going. It hurts. I know it hurts. You keep going. You keep going. It's all hard from here. 30 more steps. You keep going, Brock. Come on. Keep going. Burn. And let it burn. 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 It's all hard. You keep going, Brock. Come on. Come on. Keep going. You promised me your best. Your best. Don't stop. Keep going. Too hard. It's not too hard. You keep going. Come on, Brock. Give me more. Give me more. Keep going. 20 more steps. 20 more. Keep going, Brock. Give me your best. Don't quit! No! Keep going! Keep going! Keep going! Don't quit! Don't quit! Don't quit! Brock Kelly, you don't quit! Keep going! Keep going! Go, Brock Kelly! You don't quit on me! No! You keep going! You keep going! Go, Brock! Ten more steps! Ten more! 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 Ten Five more! Five more! Come on, Brock! Come on! Don't quit! Don't quit! Come on, Brock! Two more! One more! Oh. It's gotta do some 50. It's gotta do 50. I don't have any more. Look up, Brock. You're in the end zone. Brock, you are the most influential player on this team. If you walk around defeated, so will they. Oh, tell me you can't give me more than what I've been seeing. You just carried a 140-pound man across this whole field on your arms. Brock, I need you. God's gifted you with the ability of leadership. Don't waste it. Coach. Can I count on you? Yes. Coach? What is it, Jeremy? I weigh 160. you this morning what uh, what are your excuses what are your excuses for not being obedient to God go ahead and jump to that first question there what what are your excuses for not being obedient to God what is it what is it that keeps you from doing what you know God wants you to do what he's calling you to do, what he's already 
already spelled out as his will for you. What are your excuses for not being obedient? If you were honest with me this morning, you might be willing to say, well, honestly, Pastor Jeffrey, there's just too many things uh, for me to give up. I mean, for me to for me to do what, what I know God says is right and what he, he wants me to do, what he's called me to do, there, there's just too many other things I'd have to give up to be able to do that. I, I just... Or you might say, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I would do it. I think it's right and I would do it, but, but I'm afraid that I might lose some friends if I did that. And, and I just can't hardly bear to think of that. I've just... I'm afraid that I'd lose friends if I, if I did what I knew was right and what God wanted me to do. And I think I'd need to follow that up by asking you, when are you going to come to the place where you see that it's much more important in an eternal perspective and a right now perspective for you to be a God-pleaser Versus a people pleaser. Now those aren't always contrasting. But when they are. Who's your choice? Others might have the, the honest excuse to say. Well listen. I, somebody else will do it. What God wants me to do. If I back away from it. Because of all that I have going in my life. There's somebody else that will do it. God doesn't really really need me for this and I would say to you that's not even the issue whether or not somebody else is capable of what God's calling you to do somebody else might say to me this morning really pastor I I just don't understand enough about the Bible I don't understand enough of the the truth about God's Word. I don't know all those things. I just don't really understand enough of it for me to, you know, to live like I've heard you're supposed to live. That reminds me of the, the quote from Mark Twain, who has been quoted often as saying, it, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And I would say that pretty much Everybody in this room would understand enough of God's Word that if we were obedient to that, it would be pretty sufficient for today. Others might just say, you know, it's just too hard. It's just, I mean, it's just plain and simple. It's too hard to be a Christian. It's too hard to really be a devout follower of Jesus. It's too hard to be obedient to His Word and His commands and what he tells me, it's just, it's just too hard. It reminds me of a little bit I heard on, on the, the Clean Comedy Channel on my satellite radio the other day, uh, uh, a funny comedian uh, named Kathleen Madigan. She was talking about that big push back in the 1970s uh, to convert the, the, United, the USA to the metric system. Anybody remember that? Remember when we were going we to do that? We were, I remember being in school, and they were prepping us for that. They started teaching us the metric system and said that the whole country was gonna gonna go to that and she said that lasted what about three days because it's just too hard to do that 
just too tough. Now, Jeremiah, the prophet, as we begin to keep going in the prophet section of Scripture for a few weeks, Jeremiah was faced with a really tough task, as were most of the prophets that we read about in God's Word. His role as a prophet was to be a messenger to God's people. He was going to proclaim, this is what God says to God's people. He's given me this word, this message to proclaim to you. And the message that God was giving to Jeremiah, as it usually was to most of the prophets, was not a popular message among the people. Because the typical message that the prophets needed to deliver to the people was, you need to repent. You need to turn away from what you're doing and turn back to God. You need to, you need to confess this, get rid of it, and go this direction. You're going the wrong direction. It's time to repent. And if, and if you don't, God's judgment is going to come on you. And that was the message that Jeremiah was given, in a, in a, and I'm understating it. He had an unpopular message, a very strong message. The first chapter of Jeremiah uh, it, it gives us the, the calling that God placed on Jeremiah's life. And, and I'll just uh, summarize a little bit for you there. It, it, it talks about who his father was and, and who was the king at the moment when he was given the, this message. And, and, and we're told that, that Jeremiah was, uh, was not an older gentleman at all. He might have perhaps even have been a teenager. And he said the, the Lord gave him a message, and he understood what the message was, and, and he responded that, that he wasn't ready for that. And God said to him, no, that's, that's not the case. You shouldn't say that. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'll be with you. I've given you the words to say. Don't back away from that. And then he said to Jeremiah, he gave him a vision. He said, tell me what you see. And he said, I see an almond tree. And the Lord said, that's right. It means that I am watching, and I will certainly carry out all my plans. And then the Lord spoke to me again and asked, what do you see now? And he said, I see a pot of boiling water spilling from the north. And he said, yes, for terror from the north will boil out on the people of this land. The nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And God said to that the terror is going to come from the north, and it's even going to come from further north than Israel. It's going to rain down from Assyria. He said, listen, I'm calling all the armies of the kingdoms of the north to come to Jerusalem, and I, the Lord, have spoken. And he said, Jeremiah, you've got to tell the folks that if they don't turn to me, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. The message was one of repentance and judgment. Now, there was on the backside of that, if you do turn to God, there's going to be hope and there's going to be blessing. Usually what we want to hear is forget all that repentance and especially forget the judgment stuff. Just give me the blessing. God, I don't want to, I don't want to change anything. I want to keep doing what I'm doing, live the way I'm living, and you bless that. How about, how about that deal? Back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was reluctant to do what God was calling him to do. And he had an excuse. He tells us what that excuse was. He told the Lord what it was in verse 6. Jeremiah 1 verse 6 says this. O sovereign Lord, I can't speak for you. 
I am too young. I'm too young. Who's going to listen to a young man? I'm too inexperienced. I won't know how, how to say things. I, I, won't, I won't be able to do it right. I'm not going to have any influence. I'm just, I'm too young. I'm just not going to be able to do it. I've got a very valid excuse, God, for not doing what you're calling me to do. And God, if you'd really think it through, you'd see that my way of thinking is correct. Not too long ago, a couple of social psychologists named Travis and Aronson wrote a book called this, Mistakes Were Made, and then the subtitle says, But Not By Me. And in that book, they, they argue that we have a tendency to justify our actions. And, and the way that we do that is so powerful and so deceptive that, that, our, that our attempts at self-justification are really even much more powerful than in an explicit, outright lie. They say it kind of works like this. Self-justification allows people to convince themselves that what they did was the best thing they could have done. In fact, come to think of it, it was the right thing. There was nothing else I could have done. Actually, it was a brilliant solution to the problem. I was doing the best thing for everyone considered. And those people got what they deserved. In fact, I'm entitled to so much more myself. And they gave an example of this. Now, this may get a little sensitive right here. Are you, are you ready for that? Researchers, they had researchers ask husbands and wives what percentage of the housework they do. And the wife's response is usually something like, are you kidding? I do almost everything, and the number that they said the most was at least 90%. And the husbands say, well, I do, a, not most, but I do a lot, probably about 40%. And although, you know, the numbers would d differ from couple to couple, the, the total of that always exceeds 100%. And you know, 100% is the max. You realize that. The total always is, is higher than that by, they said, by a significant margin. And, and it's tempting to conclude that, well, maybe somebody here is lying. But what's more likely is that each one is remembering things in a way that enhances their own status and contribution. And over time, as the self-serving distortion of memory kicks in, what happens is we become, we become our excuses. We come to believe our own little lies, little by little. And we know we did something wrong, but we gradually begin to think, well, was it really my fault? The situation's very complex, hard to understand hard to deal with, and we start underestimating our own responsibility, and it whittles away until excuse after excuse, and I believe we often do the same thing in our obedience to God. 
I think another way that we look at God's will for us sometimes, and there's so much that's already spelled out in Scripture that's just cut and dry, and then there are other things that God has for us specifically to do, and sometimes we feel like God's leading us to do something that we just say, not only is that just too difficult, I just, it's just not safe. It's just not comfortable. It's just, I'm not going to be, I'm just not going to be able to do that. There's too much risk. There's just, a guy named Richard Dahlstrom wrote a book called Colors of Hope, and, and in, in that book, he, he talked about this whole idea that the key to living well is to live safely. And he kind of describes, kind of describes our typical mindset about that is, is this, you know, that you live this way. You lock your doors at night. You get an alarm system. Um, you, uh, you, you save money and, 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 and try to be prepared for retirement. You, you take vitamins and minerals and omega-3s and and ginkgo and zinc and St. John's wort and all that stuff. And you, you eat lots of soluble fibers. You exercise. You try to get at least eight hours of sleep. You, you go to church regularly. You, you, you be sure to drive careful, you know, going there and going back home. And uh, you, you don't go on mission trips because you might contract staph infection or malaria or, in, God forbid, an intestinal problem or maybe even a terrorist plot, and, and uh, you know, risky hobbies or sports, no, no, no. Instead, let's just sit in an isolated room and, and read a book while we're eating something organic and contemplate getting a colonoscopy, <laughs> which I would suggest you only do if you absolutely have to, your experience. You live that way and you're safe, right? You'll be safe. You'll be protected. Uh, not really. One of my favorite athletes back in the day was a guy named Pistol Pete Maravich. He was the best college basketball player ever from LSU and then had a good, uh, not necessarily great, but a good career in the pros, but just an amazing, amazing guy. And, and, and he stayed in shape when he retired. He was, as far as everybody knew, at the age of 40, he was a specimen, specimen of fine health. And he died from a heart attack in the gym of Pasadena Church of the Nazarene in Pasadena, California, at the age of 40 years old with no, no signs leading up to that at all. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. Great shape, a lot of exercise. Meanwhile, uh, uh, several years ago, the, the oldest woman living at the time was a lady in France, and her name was Jeanne Calment, and she died at the age of 122. She stopped smoking at 117 <laughs> because her eyesight was so bad she couldn't light the cigarettes anymore. It's not an endorsement of smoking. You know, the idea that you can just live safe in this world all the time. It's just not, I don't think it's true. And besides that, it's wrong on some other levels. First and most significantly, the abundant life in Christ is never defined by Jesus in terms of either its length 
or its comfort. To the contrary, Jesus says that those who seek to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their lives for him and for others, spilling them out in generous love for God and others, they'll find life. Maybe you want to say to me today, Pastor, I want to clear something up with you. I am not being disobedient to God. I'm just not being obedient right now. No, 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 you, no, no, listen, no. I'm not doing a bunch of terrible things, right? No, like, I'm doing pretty good with the Ten Commandments and all that. I'm not doing a bunch of terrible stuff. I'm not, I'm just, there's some, I know there's other things God's called me to do and wants me to do, and, and I may not be doing those things, but, so, I'm not really being disobedient, I'm just not being obedient. Okay. Do you, do you, think, do you think the Lord is, is convinced by that speech right there? I want to just quickly move on and wrap up here. Do, do you recognize, listen to this question, do you recognize that the Lord is not particularly interested in your excuses? He's not listening to him going, oh, I've never heard that one before. That's, that's so original. You're off the hook. first pastor that I served under when I came out of seminary told me repeatedly that excuses are non-productive. Look at what God said to Jeremiah after Jeremiah said he was too young. The Lord replied in verse 7, Don't say, I'm too young. For you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And don't be afraid of the people. For I will be with you and will protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then the Lord reached out and touched my mouth. I'm going to paraphrase those couple of verses for you. God says to Jeremiah and he says to us today, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. You do what I've called you to do, and I will be with you every step of the way. I'll enable you, and I'll protect you through the mess, through the difficulty. For I am the Lord of heaven and of earth. Let me give you a little background, just, just quickly, both for Jeremiah and for us. In verse 5, this is the first words that God gives to Jeremiah. He says, I knew you 
before you were in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God is completely and fully aware of who you are and what your situation is. He's been completely and fully aware of you before you were here. If, if we could only, if I could get myself and all of you to just grasp the, the truth that God values us more than we value ourselves. So typically what happens then is that the issue of obedience is an issue of trust. It comes down to an issue of trust. All those excuses that we throw up, it's a battle over whether or not we really trust God. And when we don't trust God, although we wouldn't say it directly, what we're saying is, I'm not really sure that God knows best. I'm not really sure that He can come through. But God backs all of this and he does it multiple times in this passage and beyond. He backs it with his solemn word and he says, I, the Lord, have spoken. I wish right now that I could just have the voice of James Earl Jones and just say that. Say that in such a way that it just rumble in this room. Where you would hear God's voice saying to you, I am the Lord and I have spoken to you. And I want, to, I want you to look at what God does. God will back up His Word and our obedience with His promises. And His promises are primarily just two things. Presence and provision. Presence, He's with us. And provision, He gives us what we need. Look at verses 17 through 19. He said to Jeremiah, Get up and prepare for action. Go out and tell them everything I tell you to say. Do not be afraid of them, or I will make you look foolish in front of them. For see, today I have made you strong, like a fortified city that cannot be captured, like an iron pillar or a, brown, or a bronze wall. You will stand against the whole land, the kings, the officials, priests, and people of Judah. A tough task. Very tough, not popular. They will fight you, but they will fail. For I am with you, presence, and I will take care of you, provision. I, the Lord, have spoken. This uh, first chapter of Jeremiah was really, really an important part of the Bible and part of God's dealing with me when I was a young man. Um, 
When I was uh, in eighth grade, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And I liked history a lot. That may be surprising to, to some folks, but I liked history a lot, and I decided I would major in history and in college and go to law school. And uh, I, I hoped that that might turn into significant income. Um, and I thought maybe on the way, maybe, I'd, maybe as going to law school or whatever, I'd teach school and maybe do some coaching or something like that. And I got to my first year of college, and, and uh, I was struggling just in my heart, not with a lot of great outward rebellion, but with just an attitude of selfishness and wanting to do my thing. And, and I'd grown up, you know, with this family of ministers and, and never, ever desired to be a pastor or anything like that. I always felt like that would, my brother would end up doing that. He was the one running for student council and the, the one in getting up in front of people and talking. And, and he's just a generally nicer person than I am. And I just thought that, that you know, that would, be, that would be the road for my brother. I had it figured out for him, and I had my way figured out as well. But when I was 17 and about to start college, God began to talk to me just about my whole attitude of obedience and willingness. I guess you'd even say the issue of surrender. And first, the way God dealt with me was just, would you be willing? Would you just be open and willing to a life of ministry if that's what, if that's what I want for you? And I wrestled with that for a few months until I came to a point where I said, Okay, God, if, if that's what you want for me. And I'm not asking for that, but if that's what you want for me. And then there was another period of a few months where God made that clear that that was what his calling was for my life. And I came to a moment of decision and said yes to that right around the time that I turned 18 during my first year of college. Since then, God's grace has um, found me in ways that, that I would have never known. It has overwhelmed me at times. And somewhere in my early 20s, I began to see my desperate need for it. And over the course of time, I've had many moments where I needed to ask for forgiveness. And I've had many moments where I needed to make another point of surrender to the Lord in my life. I've had failures. I still have some that I need His forgiveness and help for. I've also discovered in my life that any time I have traded God's will for my own, it's been a bad trade. In sports, when they make trades of players, they're always trying to forecast out in the future what's going to be the best deal for us. Well, I'll just tell you my experience. Anytime you trade God's will for your own, a bad trade it does not end 
does not lead to where you thought it would and what you want. And I found this. God is faithful. And everything I have ever truly needed. I didn't say everything I've desired. But everything I've ever truly, truly needed. He's come through. Jesus, today I, I confess my need for you. I confess that um, although the desire of, of my heart this morning is to be your faithful and true servant and be obedient to, to your word and your will, there are times when I struggle with that. There are times when I come up with excuses. There are times when I come up with with plans that I suggest to you that that would be better than what you seem to have in mind. But Lord, I confess today that I need you more than anything. And I confess today, Lord, that, that your will is best, that your word is true, that you will be faithful to every single person who puts their faith and hope and trust in you. So, Lord, I'm asking today that in this place and in this moment that we would be people with faithful, obedient hearts. We would confess our need for you, but we wouldn't ask you to bless what we're doing. We would ask you to lead us into what you want us to do, and we know that you will be there with us and provide everything that we need. Teach us this morning, Lord. May your Holy Spirit Make us strong in you, I pray in Jesus' name.